we tend to view them as bad kids, problem kids. Well, I'm a bad parent if I have a kid like that. And although I believe that over the past 20 years, I've seen people are becoming aware of it now more. Oh, yeah. It's very, very difficult for people in their guts to change their basic perceptions and then in practice to change the practices of our schools and of our schools and of our families so that we can include these people because if we don't include them. And this is based on research and over 30 years of clinical work and their doctoral dissertations that are now coming out of Israel showing that these kids are high at risk among all of the other things that they're at risk for, like drug abuse, school dropout, marital problems, work problems. They are also at risk for totally leaving any identification with the Jewish community. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. When I was growing up, I never heard of ADHD. But now we hear about it all the time. We've learned that some behaviors that were once considered signs that a child didn't care about school or achievement, or simply lacked normal self-control, are actually indicators of a difference in the way that the mind works. And instead of criticizing the people whose minds work this way, we need to find ways to help them succeed. Indeed, when properly understood, ADHD can even be a superpower, where some people think differently and more creatively than some others. Despite the advances in knowledge and societal understanding, there is still so much that people don't know, and so many ways that people who have ADHD can fall through the cracks. For Orthodox kids, who are supposed to sit quietly in shul, concentrate on Torah learning, avoid leaving the Shabbos table, and more, our religious commitments can sometimes end up feeling like a kind of torture. To address the unique needs of Orthodox people who have ADHD, Dr. Simcha Chesner and Dr. Sarah Markowitz wrote a new book entitled Kosher ADHD, and it was my pleasure and honor to speak with them about the challenges people with ADHD face and some of the methods that they recommend in order to help them overcome these challenges. We'll begin that conversation in just a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. Please help us continue to reach more and more people by subscribing and sharing with people who you think will find it engaging. It's free, and you can cancel at any time. So go to the link in the description of this podcast to get your subscription today. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Dr. Simcha Chesner founded and directed the Bnei Chayel Yeshivot in Israel for adolescents with attention deficit hyperactivity and associated disorders. He published three books in Hebrew for children and adults with ADHD, and he directed clinical services for the Edud National Program for ADHD of the Brookdale Institute and JDC. He currently lectures and supervises MA students in special education and psychology at O'Rourke Teachers College and is the executive director of the Israel Academy of Social and Emotional Learning. Dr. Chester received his PhD in clinical psychology from Case Western Reserve University, where he was awarded the David Hudson Fellowship for Excellence in Scholarship and Citizenship. He received his undergraduate degree from Yeshiva University. In 1991, Dr. Chester made Aliyah with his wife, Dr. Rachel Chester. For the past three decades, they have lived in Israel with their children and grandchildren. Dr. Sarah Markowitz has achieved an incredible amount in large part due to her personal ADHD superpowers. In addition to obtaining a PhD in clinical psychology from Farley Dickinson University, Dr. Markowitz is the founding director of an intensive outpatient program for Jewish women at Achieve Behavioral Health, the largest behavioral health center serving the greater Jewish community. Dr. Markowitz continues to develop curriculum and measure clinical outcome research for ADHD parenting groups and integration of ADHD individuals within the Jewish community. She has developed curricula currently utilized in schools and families, focusing on overcoming challenges of multiple origins. In addition to her formal professional activities, Dr. Markowitz is a mother to five children and is the Rebbitzin of Congregation Shomri Torah in Fairlawn, New Jersey. 
Dr. Simcha Chesner and Dr. Sarah Markowitz, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Before anything else, I'd like to open up by asking something which may be a bit of a tall order. If you could briefly explain what ADHD is, along with its primary symptoms and manifestations in children and adults. Dr. Chesner, let's begin with you. ADHD, something which today most people have heard of, I can tell you, about 35 years ago when I first started dealing with this, it was really something new. But what it's, it's a syndrome which reflects kids and adults who have the characteristics of impulsivity, inattention, and hyperactivity at it to a degree which is really uh, above the top of the regular population. So it means that they are more impulsive. Many of them also are more hyperactive, but you don't necessarily have to be hyperactive to have ADHD. And you're, you have problems with keeping your attention focused, specifically when you're in a situation that is a what we call a low stimuli situation, like a boring classroom, for example, is a low stimuli situation. So while for many people, while these situations may be quite uh, difficult, but for ADHD people, it is really like being put in a torture chamber. And that's basically how we view the uh, disorder today. Okay, thank you. Dr. Markowitz, do you want to add anything to that? Yes, yeah, so I would, I would add that um, it's it's really a, a misnomer in some ways, like just attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, um, because while these are the the like the areas that are are markers like impulsivity, hyperactivity, and attentiveness, it really misses the boat. Like there's a lot more that's going on than th than these three things. So we have to really understand that. So the way that we, like, really, as, as Dr. Chesler mentioned, it's a brain-based temperament that it really is. There's a part of the brain called the, the prefrontal cortex. I'm not going to get too boring, even though it's very exciting for me, because I, I find this very, very interesting because it has, like, such a direct correlation to behavior. But it's the part of the brain that's the CEO, the executive functions, and it helps us manage in daily living, helps us what a CEO does, right? Like, think about the future, put things on hold, be able to put the brakes on life so that I can, you know, live according to values, do things according to longer term goals. I can follow through. I could for, you know, I, I know that I could put something away so that I can, um, cause I care about a, a longer term goal or, or care about somebody else. Um, unfortunately, so with executive functions, there, there are many of them. I'm not going to go into all of them, but we see that there are really um, challenges that without setting up an environment in the right way, it could really be a lot more comprehensive from everything as small as being able to turn your system off, like shutting down at night and regulating arousal, right? To getting up in the morning, to remembering things. I would say it's like having a whiteboard and you uh, ask your child, your spouse, can you get me this and, and now get me the next thing? So imagine you have a whiteboard and most people, they can hold on to a few things at one time People who, who might have this brain constellation might have trouble with what we call working memory. And every time you add something new, it erases the first one. That is something that adults struggle with as they get older, but that can be pretty debilitating. And if you don't know, pretty offensive. So um, these are areas that are a lot more expansive in our in our understanding of it that also can is, is part of this presentation. Now, let me ask you something, Dr. Markowitz. Again, I speak as a complete layperson here. I'm not somebody who has any expertise in this whatsoever, but I believe that I've read that the prefrontal cortex is also that which is associated with understanding consequences, which is something which obviously is affected by maturity. Does that mean that for many people, since it's the same part of the brain, that ADHD in children is more acute for some than it will be in adulthood? It naturally then calms down as they mature and as their prefrontal cortex does develop, or are they unrelated? It's definitely related, and Dr. Chesner can also speak to this. Um, it is related, and people mature in many of these areas, although for some, just depending on the unique constellation, some people will still, if you have someone who is a very impulsive um, child, right, very much in the moment, 
so they can get older, they can understand more, compensate in other ways, maybe mature with wisdom, right? Like in life you have learned, but it's a slower learning curve, right? It, it might not fully go away. Again, some things people mature, but it's a, it, this is another misconception is that people grow out of ADHD. Honestly, I used to think that until I looked at the research and you know we just were not looking necessarily in the right way. Again, many people can really make significant advances, but in the world that we live in, the demands that we have that increase in adulthood. So again, it just depends. You can really look better in a lot of ways, but as your demands for life get more and more, a person's executive functioning ability might be more diminished. Um, and this person is, is neurologically more sensitive to, to this. Um, and can really, really have a harder time at certain areas of life, like on their fifth child, maybe, or or getting a career advancement, et cetera. Dr. Chester, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I just want to say, I think it's very important for people to understand that this is among other disorders that are called neurodevelopmental, which neurodevelopmental means it's changing throughout life. It's really important, I think, to make this point very, very clear that, I mean, it's really tr terrific news. Today, people speak about neuroplasticity, that the brain is always, as opposed to the rest of us, which seems to pretty much reach its uh, apex, you know, when we're about 20 years old, and then we start going downhill in terms of the purely physical sides of ourselves. When you look at the uh, mental sides of it, the brain has a lot of plasticity. It means it, it can change and adapt to new functions over time. And people can learn things even when they're old men like me, past 60. We can still keep on learning new things because if we're not ill because the brain is capable of doing this. Having said that, it's very important for parents to understand that teenagers, the average teenager, I'm not speaking about ADHD, but just the average teenager is still missing a significant part of his frontal lobe. It hasn't developed yet. So, you know, the average teenager needs parents and needs rules. And how, and how much more so a child with ADHD where his problems here are more severe uh, than the average child. Right, so their developmental process is a little bit behind now, again, you have to know your child. It's very different profiles, and there are tremendous things that we can do in order to manage these systems, so, you know, parts of the brain so that people can succeed more. Dr. Chester, let me ask you, because you mentioned the plasticity of the brain, how much of ADHD, to the best of our knowledge, is something which is genetic or a neurological predisposition as opposed to something which is induced by environmental or societal factors? Well, you know, without trying to sound like we're copping out and, and avoiding the issue, we call ADHD as biosocial disorder. And this means that part of it is really based on your neurological temperament, how you come into the universe, how your brain is wired and how the chemicals mix up there. Uh, the other part of it is determined by our environment, our experience and our interactions. We find in the work that we do and the research supports this, that there is a very strong correlation between ADHD and families biologically. We tend to see a big part of ADHD tends to come from families. Oftentimes parents come to me and what they say in my office, you know, a father who is often in denial about the child's problems comes in and says, there's nothing wrong with him. He's just like me. And then the mother looks at the father and says, yeah, that's right. He is just like you. You also can't remember from one day to the next and you're too impulsive and you're not thinking about consequences. So, it, yeah, it, it really it's very clear today that this is something which, in fact, I think most things are like this. It's not either or, but it's a combination of both of these factors, environment and genetics. Then let me ask you, are there issues that rise out of Orthodox Judaism specifically in terms of our society, in terms of the way that we live, which can exacerbate some of those natural tendencies that are already present in somebody who has ADHD? Yeah, well, I feel that Orthodox Judaism, Torah Judaism, the Torah world, uh, in a sense, for a couple thousand years, we suffer from what I call the Esau complex, 
the Asaph complex. We don't want any of our kids to be anything like Asaph because he in our tradition has been uh, viewed as a real, a, a, the bad guy. But I view him as really the first kid who had ADHD in the universe. When uh, he sold his birthright to uh, Yaakov, for example. So if you look at the text in the Torah, it says, Vayochal, Vayesht, Vayakom, Vayelach, Vayivez, Esav, et And Esav ate and drank and got up and walked away and he disdained the birthright. It is the only place in the entire Tanakh, in the entire Bible, where you'll see five consecutive verbs, one right after the other, boom, 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 boom. So I would say, you know, it's clear that the author is trying to present the message that this man, and when I say the author, I'm thinking of author with a capital A there, but he's, the message that is being presented is of a very impulsive action-oriented creature. And we know he's the bad guy. On, on contrast, we know that Yaakov is described as Ishtam Yoshev Ohalim, the perfect man, who the dweller of tents. In other words, Yaakov, Jacob, is the good student. He's courteous. He's mannered well. He's the type of kid that we like. And of course, we're, you know, Yaakov is Israel, and we're all B'nai Yisrael. So somehow, miraculously, it seems that we've wiped out this ace of gene from our population. Now, that's not true. You know, and we, we know that's not true because we have that same genetic predisposition that Asaph had, some of us do. And one of the things that we uh, really point out, we feel it's very important to realize, Asaph is, re is referred to as an admoni, red, fiery creature. You know, he, that was his temperament, an admoni temperament. And in the Bible, there's only one other person in the entire Bible who is also referred to as an Admoni, and that is David. David HaMelech is also an Admoni. And in fact, the first time that Shmuel, the prophet, sees David after Yishai presents him as a potential candidate for king, he presents him, by the way, uh, as his last option after all of the other sons had been rejected. However, you know, what, what Shmuel's first words, it says, Vayar Ehu, he sees him, Vahinei Admoni, that he is an Admoni. And the Midrash Hagadol on Shmuel, it says right there, Hinei Admoni, who Rotseach, who Esav. Shmuel, the prophet, saw that David was, in fact, of the same temperament as Esav. And it requires a divine commandment, that God has to command Shmuel to say, no, these characteristics are the characteristics of kingship. And when you look at David HaMelech, you see a, a man who was both a, a, a fighter, a, a soldier, a warrior, a poet, a lover, a, 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 a tremendously spiritual human being. He was this mix of characteristics and it seems to me that throughout our history, we do a really, really great job of educating the Yaakovs, but we're not really good. What do we do with these Davids? So that with this temperament of the of the uh, the Admoni temperament, and I, I think that's where it all starts from. We tend to view them as bad kids, problem kids. Well, I'm a bad parent if I have a kid like that. And although I believe that over the past 20 years, I've seen people are becoming aware of it now more. Oh, yeah. It's very, very difficult for people in their guts to change their basic perceptions and then in practice to change the practices of our schools and of our schools and of our families so that we can include these people because if we don't include them. And this is based on research and over 30 years of clinical work and their doctoral dissertations that are now coming out of Israel showing that these kids are high at risk among all of the other things that they're at risk for, like drug abuse, school dropout, marital problems, work problems. They are also at risk for totally leaving any identification with the Jewish community because they are hit over the head so many times as being told they are bad and that's really what, with kosher ADHD, we're trying to fight against. I want to ask Dr. Markowitz about that in just a moment. I'm so impressed with that comparison to Esav. I never thought of it that way. But even as you're speaking, the fact that he says, Behold, I am going to die. What do I need a b'chorah for? What do I need a birthright for? 
it's not understanding consequences. It's that immediacy, that impulsivity, as you say. It's, uh, wow, I'm very impressed with that. There's a lot to ask about that. But Dr. Markowitz, what do you want to add to that particular comparison? Well, I, I want to say that it's a big chiddush, this biosocial theory. A, a different hat of mine is, is doing a lot of dialectical behavior therapy at Achieve Behavioral Health at Muncie. I run an intensive outpatient program for Jewish women. And we use a lot of dialectical behavior theory, therapy. And I remember thinking like, well, what's dialectics? What is this whole thing about? It's really learning skills. Um, it is deeply profound because what it really says is that there's certain people who are born biologically who are just more vulnerable to their emotions. And then the world, for some people, they can validate like, oh, you know, 20 kids get lollipops, but you have the one or two kids who just can't get over that they didn't get the one they wanted. And it's so hard. And you just say, why, why can't you do that? When through the social part, there's a biological vulnerability, the social part, the invalidation creates so many problems. And those are the most significant. I work with people who are struggling in so many ways, the amounts of pain that comes when you feel that you don't understand me and you're being told your experience is wrong. Then when, when, when Dr. Tresner presented this, I thought this is the most, there's because it's a no blame approach. No, it's no one's at fault. It's just a, it's a mismatch between the biological and the environment. And we can teach people to have a better fit with the environment and the child to understand their biological makeup. There's so much that we can do and we can teach skills to help to regulate. So to me, this is, it's so powerful. It's it, the, the no blame approach is just, it's, it's profound. And I'm, you know, I, and the, and, and I heard it, the, the David and Asav, I, I thought like this fits not like really very, very well. Okay, then Dr. Markowitz, I want to take that further because even as listening to you both, I'm so impressed that such an interesting reinterpretation in my mind, maybe it's not even a reinterpretation, but an understanding of what Asav was all about. It also makes me sad because Asav is the prototypical villain. He's the grandfather of Amalek. He is not somebody that we ask our kids to emulate. And in fact, Let's call them ADHD tendencies. If we see Asav as embodying those tendencies, and that was his flaw, then we're basically saying, regardless of the comparison with David Amelach, that's a wonderful way of, it's true, he is the other Admoni, of course. At the same time, we say, yes, you're like David and you're also like Asav. I don't know how we can use that. And what I mean by that is, I'm really leading into a second question. Are there positives about ADHD that we can look at as opposed to a negative ASAP-like characteristic that you have to overcome? Can ADHD be a superpower, so to speak, in addition to being a handicap? Of course, but can I take a step back for one moment and say that it doesn't exclude choice, right? There are ways that you can teach in the right environment you know, helping a person, as, as Dr. Chesner so beautifully says in the in the book about becoming wise guides, right? We become educators in every sense of the word, every person who interacts. And by the way, that's who we are. We're people who are mechanchen, right? As like, as people, not everyone is as, as good at this, so we can develop that ability. But we, th this person still has choice just because they tend to sometimes react in certain ways doesn't mean that they are going to be impulsive and make poor decisions and poor judgment all the time. If they're being like, you know, every minute of every day, they're being told this is a bad decision and you're, you're ripping into them. Ultimately, it's like, forget about it. Like, I'm done. I don't want to try. And then you, you see things get much worse. But there are so many points. So sorry, I had to give that caveat because it's not a death sentence and it's not a predetermined way of life because then you're just like, oh, like Paro, he had no choices. No, no, no. That's not what we're saying. You know, the, the Rambam talks about uh, having different temperaments. People have it. There's ways to work on it. I don't think, you know, that's like it was. Dr. Trezor, you could speak to the, the, the positive superpower parts, and, and I can jump in also, because there's a lot to be said. Please do. I think that before you look at the superpowers, you had asked earlier in terms of does Orthodox Judaism present challenges? And it certainly does, because when a child wakes up in the morning, He's supposed to remember to say Moda'ani. And just remembering to say that simple thing is not as easy for all people. We think it's automatic. Well, it's either automatic or it's not. And certainly to say with Kavana, we all understand is hard for, for any of us, you know, for most of us. But just to say it to Davin is incredibly, a, it's a bizarre thing if you have ADHD. Well, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, they don't, when you speak about things, you know, usually when I pray for something, God, make me a millionaire, let money come down from heaven. 
Now you see it, it didn't come down. You can, <laughs> you see, you know, it didn't yes. come down. So, you know, if you have ADHD and you don't see things, it becomes very not tenable, not understandable. Why? How does this work? The idea of having to sit in shul and not move, the idea of having to sit around the Shabbos table and, and be, you know, this long, drawn-out meal, which might be very pleasurable for some people who are active in the conversation, but you have ADHD, and if you don't find a way to engage in what's going on, so you're going to disengage, disconnect, and drop out, and that's unfortunately what happens to a lot of these kids when it comes to their connection with Jewish life. Right. And also they're like automatically chutzpah. Right? Like I'm saying, a person who has trouble having a filter, right, or putting the brakes on sometimes. So it, it just like comes out of the mouth. Even the sweetest of kids, they have a hard time and the teachers are like shocked. But it's just harder for them to put the brakes on this thing. You know, as Russell Barkley says, everyone has the same emotional experience and want to say something to that person. But the child with ADHD or the adult with ADHD just has a harder time actually doing it, right? That doesn't mean that there's that ways to work on it. Again, just reiterating these points. If you think about identity and the, the negativity and the positivity, imagine that, you know, someone's fast paced and you put them on the debate team or you say, uh, you know, you have, you're so labadic, you love dancing and singing. So if you say this kid, okay, um, since you're not steiging in the base medrash, so I don't want you to be the Baal you can't be the Baal like you're not a good role model, right? But if instead you say, this kid is not going to be really stark in the base medrash, there are other ways for him to be really successful because he is so labadic. There's so many times when you want him to be labadic or you want her to be labadic. So if we could turn to that and say, it's not busy, Eved, right? There's a space for this. We have to find ways to engage them and learning what you could do. Because boredom is difficult. So how do you get them connected? And Dr. Chesner has ways to get people more connected in Torah and understanding, right? But to understand that if we, in shifts like this, that we're not continuing to perpetuate the lack of opportunity, but we're using the things that we that they're really great at in very positive ways. This is the kid who's always talking in class. That's amazing. So there's a kid who's always anxious. Pair them together. Make sure he's going around in the yard and, and taking care of him. It like finds ways to, to to help them. But and then in, just to go into more specifics, hyper focus could be an amazing thing. You ever put someone who has hyper focus or or a lot of passion? And you're teaching in a the classroom. They have to learn and prepare. So yeah, you want them to do you know like some amazing work. It could be amazing. You want someone to who's hyper focused now to shift out of what they're doing. Forget about it. Kid or adult, you're going to get a tantrum. It's just going to look different. You know, imagine you're in the middle of doing this and someone calls you and, you know, you're like in the zone, right? So this is how the brain works. If you can learn to, to own that more, to understand it, to use it, that's amazing. Like nonlinear thinking, I would say. Nonlinear thinking would be my last one. People look at me and they're like, Sarah, just finish your sentence. Stay with one topic, right? But my brain is nonlinear. So I jump from one thing to the next, but I can be very creative. And a lot of what I do is thinking out of the box solutions. That's really helpful. And now I need people at work who also just, you know, first thing, then the second thing, then the third, that's very helpful. But all different types of brains and all different neshamas have a lot of, a lot to offer in the world. I have heard that that nonlinear thinking can actually be very, very helpful for certain people in the sense that depending on the type of job or role that you have, sometimes people are in roles where they have to be concentrating on a hundred different things at once, and they can't only focus on one thing. One example I heard many years ago was about President Bill Clinton, who many say is a great example of someone who has ADHD. Regardless of whether you like Clinton or not, he did a lot as president, whether you like it or not, and that means that he was very good at being able to take care of 200 different things going on at the same time. It wasn't one task. He wasn't the secretary of X. He was in charge of everything. I've heard that was actually part of the secret of why he was effective in the things that he was effective in, because he was able to jump from one thing to another. It also could be a negative at times when he jumped from one thing to another when he had to focus, but there's a positive side to it as well. If, if I can uh, to pick up on what you're saying, you know, I've, I've been in Israel for the past 30 so years, and um, I remember about 20 years ago, I, I was treating a psychologist, a, a child of one of the uh, 
leading rabbis in Israel that uh, very well known, everyone knows, you know, from the religious Zionists sector and came into my office. I'll never forget it with him and his wife. And as we're talking, he's reading, writing, reading, writing. I mean, I see he's doing three things at once as he's sitting in front of me and I'm, I'm trying. And for me, it was very distracting. I said, what, what are you doing? <laughs> but I, I said, excuse me, you know, Rabbi, what are you doing? He said, look, when I grew up, I was different from all of the other kids in my class. And I was today, you call it ADHD. When I was a kid, I had a very short attention span. I couldn't sit. And I was ready to give up on myself. I said, I'm not going to make it in the yeshiva world. I can't study. And then one of my teachers said to me, well, what can you do? Because And I said to him, I, I can focus on anything for 15 minutes. You know, if you give me 15 minutes for any one thing, I'll be really into it. So the teacher said to him, well, why don't you just hop around from one thing to another? Learn three things at one time. And this man explained to me, I've been doing that ever since all my waking hours. I don't, I can't stay in just one thing. I get like in my mind, I get bored. And so I have, I have to something else. And this fellow, he's one of the Gidole Hador. When I speak about him in Israel, I mean, he lets me use his name. I don't, I don't want to say it now, but like, <laughs> I, I feel that, um, you know, again, you look, it's looking at the individual and seeing what can this person do? What is, what are his abilities? Not what are his disabilities? That's really the key of making the shift. And I, I want to reflect how, imagine what it's like to be a loved one, teacher, grandparents of the person who's like this, right? If you're a spouse trying to talk to someone who is doing three things at one time, but that allows them to focus on what you are saying to them, right? That's really not, it's, it's disrespectful. It communicates that you are not the most important thing, right? I have these other things that are all, like, you're as important as these two other things, no, right? It's not being seen as something that is helpful to listen. And, and teachers also, they don't see like that this movement, right? This kid is like a little bit like moving around, coloring, that allows them to listen. Otherwise, they're like out of there. But it's very hard because you're also worried. What is the next the next kid going to say? Are all these kids going to be all over the place? We live in a different society today. So maybe we need to be thinking about a lot of different things. Right? It brings up larger issues. But uh, I, one woman at one of the times that we spoke said to me, she said, yeah, but I tell people, no, no, no. Even in kindergarten, I know the difference. The difference is, is that when you tell one kid, you know, in kindergarten, like sit down, one of the kids like really wants to, but they can't. The other kid, they're not, you know, they're not really sitting, but they're not, they don't really want to. It's the kid who really wants to be able to sit, but can't. That's who we're talking about. There's a spectrum. Not to say that executive functions, some people will listen to us and think like, I have it. Oh my gosh. Guys, every, you know, executive functioning, we all have profiles, you know, the whole thing, but just something to, to, Keep in mind as we as we understand the impact on the environments and the fears that come up as people consider this. So I'm going to get into some of the manifestations in orthodoxy and some of the ways that we can treat it or deal with it or help people who are struggling with it in orthodoxy soon. But as a prelude, I want to ask about what you're saying, Dr. Markowitz, and also what you said, Dr. Chester, in terms of the differences in the ways that people learn, the ways that people react with their environment. If it's just a difference rather than a disorder, in other words, if it's not really ADHD, it's ADH. If that's true, then are we making a mistake? And maybe it's not true. But if that is true, are we making a mistake when we medicate? Because that means we're just trying to adapt the child to the environment rather than trying to adapt the environment to the child. And we're thereby depressing and pushing down a child's natural ability. Did I misunderstand something? We can understand your question. I don't think I don't think you misunderstood, but I, I think that you are actually touching on something which is a point of great controversy and great difficulty. And that is that, you know, as we said, ADHD is viewed today as a biosocial bio disorder, means environment and genetics making a good fit. When we send our children to school, for example, well, school 
as I've already said, can be a torture chamber for a person with ADHD. The stimulus level is very low. Rewards tend to be very mild and very much in the future. When you say, you know, here in Israel, kids come to school at the beginning of the year in September, and they said, you're going to get your report card on Tubishvat. Well, I mean, maybe Tubishvat can mean something to, you know, I mean, some of the kids in that class. But if you have ADHD, like, Tubishvat is like, uh, you know, 100 years from now. I mean, it's like, you know, I don't, I'm going to be dead by then. You know, it doesn't really connect. So a child by nature, the way our schools are set up today is that the school, even with all of the improvements that people are trying so hard to make, and we respect the teachers and the educators, but the school as an institution was not set up to be a place where the ADHD person can thrive. Oftentimes, their skills are missed over there. Now, today, you know, since 1937, when Ritalin was first used, or something like Ritalin was used, that we we've been able to see that oh, we can increase kids' attentional focus and sensitivity to rewards when we give them this medication. Well, that's good if the child has to be in school. So if you're like most of us and we do have to send our kids to, kids to school, and if medication actually helps the kids function in school, then I would say, well, that medication is a good thing. Is it going to solve the problem? No. Is it enough? No. Pills don't teach skills. Pills don't teach skills. And yet on the other hand, if you don't give the pill, in my opinion, it's being it, it's being cruel if there aren't the side effects and many kids don't have serious side effects to the medication. It helps a lot of kids. So it doesn't solve the problems, just like the glasses that I'm with, that all three of us are wearing now. They don't correct our, our vision. But if we would say that it's forbidden, I won't let you wear glasses, then people would think that I hate to read, for example, and I love to read. But if I didn't have glasses, I wouldn't be able to read. So I think that this is how we view our you know, medication. Well, the difference would be there. Without glasses, there's no positive to having not great vision. The glasses actually improve your vision. It doesn't take away from your blurriness in some way that is negative. But if ADHD actually has some form of superpower, you're depressing and putting away the superpower by medicating it. Well, sometimes it actually makes the superpower better. Right. I'm in saying it could, it could fine tune the super, superpower. You know what I mean? If I want to drive somewhere, right, and my brain is all over the place, <laughs> I want to get there alive. You know what I mean? Like, I got to get there alive. And if you're saying just the same way that if a person has a thyroid disorder and all you got to do is take one pill a day, it's different, actually. I wouldn't say it's the same, but it just goes to that part of the brain. Sometimes it gets complicated. It does. Right with medication, it could get a whole complicated series of what works for people. But the idea that it's a part of the brain that's not functioning in the right way, and you can give medication that helps if you want the brain to function in that way, and you can't modify the environment to help them succeed. Sometimes, even when you modify the environment, this might give a person a better chance. Like, and maybe it's not for forever, but certain kids can't learn skills how to manage, certain adults can't learn skills until they have pills. It's like, they're not available to learn. You ever have that where you're like, come with me, come learn. And then like, they can't take it in. And then in a calmer moment, you're sitting with a child and they're able to take it in. It's the same way that you don't teach a child a lesson in the midst of an emotionally dysregulated or your spouse also, you know, like moment necessarily. That's not when you're teaching. So again, it's that notion of how do we help them have more moments they can access learning and learning can be in a lot of different ways. Now, again, if you're on the farm, maybe it's a different story, but if they're not on the farm um, and even if they are on the farm, who knows, maybe we don't want them to cut their hand off. I'm not saying it's so simple, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, okay, so they're so happy on the farm, whatever one. Again, this is not a blanket. I just think it's, it's really erroneous when people, it, it's just... It, it evokes a lot of feelings, but I just, I think for us or for me, one important thing is that it's not the end all and be all. And also it can, it can be helpful. Um, so it's not helpful as an end within itself. And people have very strong feelings and that's, that's understandable among, you know, many things. But I think it's, it's, it's really hard that everyone just throws it out there, like get on medication or, or people abuse it. I, I, I see that that is Chaval and that reflects 
maybe the values that we're trying to get people to perform in a certain way and do certain things. And, and maybe we have to shift out of that, but Chava for the people who really, really need it and are not able to get access to this and it would be otherwise detrimental. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Dr. Chester, do you want to add something? just want to say we live in a society where we, we've accepted the norm that we use pills in order to enhance our functioning. And it's not just we don't only take a pill for our life or death situation. You take an aspirin, you know, or a, you don't take aspirin anymore unless, you know, but like, I mean, you, you take uh, whatever you take. And in Israel, it's called Akamol. It's not, it's Dexamol. You take Dexamol to, to uh, you know, reduce your fever. You're probably not going to die if you don't take the Dexamol, but you'll probably feel a lot more comfortable taking the Dexamol. And, you know, does that depress their natural skills? I think in the romantic vision, yes. I think that those who are on the ground, the answer is no. I can tell you a lot of kids with in my schools, they would often say to me, um, you know, I just don't feel myself when I when I did when I'm taking it. I don't feel like I'm me. And sometimes, you know, they really mean that they really are depressed or they really are just like lacking in energy. And yeah, that's a bad side effect. But sometimes it means that they're used to being a Vildechaya. And now they're thinking a little more, so they're not a Vildechaya. You're right. You're not acting the way you usually act. And that's that's okay. That maybe that's okay. Maybe that's gonna help you in the long run. I, I recently was was um talking to a, a child who really is advancing so much and being on medication allowed this child to actually make decisions and react differently and at one point she you know wanted to change the dosage to go to to be able to attend more and then when she did she was actually able to be more herself and fun then she found herself making a lot of impulsive comments to people and her friends were not appreciating that right and that it wasn't worth it for her to feel more like herself a little bit more, meaning, and that was a choice, right? Like it's it's not all or nothing, but I thought like, wow, you can have a child making this type of decision. Like I would rather maintain my friendships um, than, than be able to be a little bit more uppity. And and that's, that's, that's big, again, and without medication at all, she knew then she would just be beating everyone up, you know? And I'm definitely not against medication. I certainly appreciate what you're both saying. In fact, I think it's a beautiful thing that nowadays our kids seem to be so much more comfortable with the idea that their friends may be medicated. I don't know what we would have said back when I was growing up if we knew that someone was on some sort of neurological medication like Ritalin. I don't know what I would have said, but I would have looked a little bit askance, I think, just, oh, that's a little bit embarrassing. And now I know that our kids will see their friends and say, oh, are you, did you forget your medication today? And it's not a big deal. It's the kind of thing where it's just part of, I hear about in their camps, they have the meds line. And that's just part of life. I think that's a very positive thing that has developed over the years. I would like to move into speaking about ADHD and Orthodox Jews in a specific way. I know that in your book, Kosher ADHD, you talk about ways that people can overcome some of the challenges challenges that ADHD presents in specific areas of Jewish life. So we already mentioned davening. Let's start there. Let's use davening as an example, because Dr. Chester, you did talk about how davening can be extremely challenging for people with ADHD for many reasons, sitting there for an hour or two hours and just doing nothing except for reading, or the fact that there's no response from God immediately that we can feel that's tangible. So someone who has ADHD, or maybe specifically a child with ADHD, how can I get my ADHD child, Get maybe that's the wrong terminology, but how can I make the experience of davening more positive for that child? Okay. In general, for all of the different situations, we speak about the five Ps. There are five Ps of developmentally attuned parenting. And these P's are, and it will apply them to, to davening, for example. The P's are, one, the first P is perspective. The second P is plan. The third P, P is practice. The fourth P is performance. And the fifth P is praise. There are five P's that if you follow that system, you will get many, many ADHD kids to significantly enhance. The first one is pers perspective. 
what is the perspective, not of the child to begin with, but of the parents, the teachers, the significant adults who are in the area? Do you see him as the reincarnation of Asaph, the bad guy, the black sheep of the family? Or are you able to see that this is a kid who really wants to be good, but has certain bad character, you know, difficult difficulties, challenges, just like a kid who has a reading disability, who's going to have challenges learning reading. So this is a behavioral disability and he's going to have challenges implementing his behavior. So that's the first P, perspective. We try to teach parents to become mindful and intentional in what they are doing and how they are reacting to this kid. And although, you know, I've just said it in maybe 30 seconds, it's something that is often very, very difficult for anyone to change their basic perception. But if you don't do that, it is very hard to get to the next four Ps. So, you know, you work with the parents and the rabbeim and the teachers to, to, we want to view these kids differently. How can we have them fit in, be included in the Jewish community? So that right. and to see a non-judgmental, really, really, you know, to be able to keep them in and like where they are, right? Share Hushem. Right. Second P is plan. You got to make a plan. Very now, making a plan requires your perspective. Hopefully, from your perspective, you were able to identify. What is the source of the difficulty? So if I see that the source of the difficulty, for example, is that this kid can't sit still for 20 minutes, okay, much less the two hours of a Shabbos morning davening, but I know he can't even sit still for 20 minutes. So I, I'm going to make a plan that is going to not require him to sit still for 20 minutes, but it will require him to focus on one part of the tefillah, which is a central park, like part, like let's say I bring him on Friday night to Kabbalah Shabbos to shul, and I'm going to say to him, I want you to come in for the chadodi when we sing it. Don't then play around, knock yourself out, but come in for the chadodi. And you know, you go to him, you practice, and when you come in, we're going to be singing it, and you know the tunes, or, blah, 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 or maybe you'll even be the chazin, I know what, but you know, so you make a plan. And then you practice the plan. So you know, it's parents really have to, if parents who practice the situation with the child before the child gets into it, when the child gets into that situation, he does much better. So if we practice the plan and then performance, the child performs the plan. And then the child, the, the next, the last P is praise. And that's when the the parent really has to just look at wonder and amazement at what the child has done. And opposed to, as opposed to saying to him, praise, no, like he's sitting there for the whole davening and what, you know, you just came in for L'chadodi. You know, he said, what a great job you did on L'chadodi. When parents are able to do that, or teachers, rabbis, I went with one family, we met with their rabbi of their shul, because the kid hated davening in the morning. And we, I mean, he never would put on tefillin. And then we went to the rabbi and we found that the kid didn't, didn't hate davening, but what he hated was having to 45 minutes to sit still, you know? But if he would just have to say, Shema Yisrael and the Shemona Esrei, and, you know, the parents themselves were frightened. They said, we can't tell this to our kid. You know, people don't do it. But you, you make... Uh, we, you know, in the in the big world, it's called accommodations. These are the type of accommodations that result in the kid feeling good about himself, as opposed to feeling bad about himself. And they keep them as Jews, and that's basically what we're trying to do: is to turn this. It's almost like a gravity. It feels like you know, fight against this this force, you know, of that is just like squashing these kids and like stop the wheel and get it rolling in the other direction through this giving them expectations that they can come do, setting up realistic expectations, having them practice it, and then learning to be, you know, the word we use here in Israel is lehitpael, to be just, wow, the wow, you did it. And you know, to learn how to really feel that, and we find that parents and teachers and rabbis can learn to really feel, look, he's done it. You know, we think if our brain does it, every brain does it, and it's just not so. And when you really have found what they're up to, right? You speak about like the zone of proximal development or really understand what they're up to now. And then you want to push them, not push them. You want to start where they're at and ask them to do a little bit more that they're capable of by this whole five Ps. But if you really get, no, 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 they really can't do so much more. So when you get them to do a little bit more with this model, you really, and you really get the first P, it, wonder is like part of it. 
meaning we're saying praise and sometimes prize because a person's brain does not respond as much without these external things. I always say when I had to write my notes at work, I'd have to promise myself I could only text my friends after I do it. I'm an adult, but I don't want to do my notes. They're so hard for me. It's so painful. So I would have to like bribe, like I'd incentivize myself because that's how I get my brain. I was doing it anyway. Right? There are all these principles I'm using, but in this, the more you really get it and then you, you come on strong, like, wow, it's such a big deal. Then they want to be able to do more and you can add more. It, it's not clear, oh, where is the end game going to be? But we don't look at like what the end goal is going to look like. We're trying to, because that's a very big barrier. I'm trying to get this person to look like this. I have it all the time when people come in and they want them to already be in this predetermined place. And comparing them to everybody else, it, it won't work. There's so much disappointment and pain. But if you look at them for themselves and you have this like model and process and you really are, you're increasing. My father taught this to me, idea, intensity, duration, frequency. And it's a wonderful way to really be able, you know, are you seeing changes in, let's say they're, they're usually when they're having such a hard moment, they're yelling at you for five minutes. Now it's three minutes. It's less intense. It's not often, right? You're moving down. Now you're moving up. Like these are things that we have to acknowledge. Don't take for granted that they're just able to do it because we will them to, or we told them, or it's an expectation. That's like if I gave you a lot of pipes and I said, Rabbi Khan, please go build. I'm going to give you these pipes. Can you just fix, make plumbing for your building? That you, how would you feel? overwhelmed right you would feel like pressure you would feel stupid unless you're a plumber and you move on the hours i know are you a plumber i am not i would feel that whoever asked that i'd say no they're out of their minds because that's the last thing i could possibly do right and and you wouldn't and it would it really would leave you with a lot of internal and imagine now you're asked to do it a different day and everyone else is going to figure it out so what's with you what, I mean, you have no other choice but to determine that, like, either there's shame, there's guilt, I feel inferior. And what, what are people meant to do? As you get older, you're like, I guess I don't even like davening. I guess I don't, you know, I guess my, uh, my, uh, like, you know, she, he's so crumb. He doesn't even care about Tefillah if he can't get up. It's terrible. Like, it's really terrible. I have to say that I'm very impressed. This idea of the five P's, the perspective, plan, practice, performance, and praise, it makes a lot of sense. The perspective is the one that I find the most difficult because that involves almost a societal realignment of sorts. I think of the fact of kids that I saw when I was raising my own kids when they were little and say, wow, look at that kid. He sits in davening all the time. And in comparison, perhaps to my own kid who had a much more difficult time, maybe sitting in davening and singing along. And now in retrospect, I realize that my own kid has his or her own abilities that maybe the other child didn't have. But our society values, I'm speaking about Orthodox people now, we value very specific things that seem to be the opposite of what ADHD kids are good at and the things that are specifically very difficult for ADHD kids. So how can we change, and maybe this is more of a question for sociologists than for two people who have doctorates in psychology, but how do we change the way that we look at our children, the way we look at our society? Because as Orthodox Jews, and maybe this is even more so in Israel, the best kids, and I'm using that term deliberately, the best kids are the kids who can sit and learn well, and the quote-unquote bad kids are the kids who can't. And that's sometimes tragic, not only because we're using a moral category to define certain kids based on whether or not they have the ability to concentrate, but also because it means that the kids who are sugbet, not as good, the ones who aren't going to get as good as shidduch, the ones who are looked at societally just as not as great guys or not as great girls are the ones who have wonderful things they can contribute and yet we don't value that. So what can we do as a society, as Orthodox people? Yeah, I think first of all, this is a... The, the hardest shell to crack of the problem. The reason why, why aren't there in every Jewish community, why aren't there special classrooms, special schools, special accommodations for these type of children? Because of what you say, this the societal discrimination against these kids, what I call the, the, the ASOF complex. I mean, this is alive and well, and nobody speaks about it 
because these children have no representation. And the reason they have no representation is because they disappear from us. You know, in Israel, it's a little harder. They don't disappear because, you know, we're here with it. We're dealing with an entire nation. We can't, we have to deal with them in some way. So, you know, I met my first Jewish plumbers and gardeners and this when I lived in the, in, in the United States. I never met a, a Jewish plumber, electrician, gardener, uh, etc. You know, we didn't do these things. We were all, you know, rabbis, doctors, or lawyers, or, you know, rich businessmen. Um, and so to change comes, I believe, from the bottom up. I don't know how to change it. I don't believe it can be changed from the top down. I believe change comes slowly, and it becomes comes through awareness. I've been in this field now for over three decades, and there is change happening. The very fact that we can do this podcast and, you know, the reason we can do a podcast about ADHD is because pretty much everybody knows about ADHD already. I can tell you 35 years ago, nobody knew what ADHD was. And they said, what are you talking about? I mean, you know, they didn't know. So it's very, very slow. But I think one at a time, the first step and you speak, yeah, you do your ch changing perspective is education. It's combating ignorance. And that's really, I believe, what we're doing. We're combating ignorance. I know that this very well-known rabbi read the book at Kosher ADHD, and he said to me afterwards, I wish I would have read this book 30 years ago. And he, as I've just been thinking about the last 30 years as a congregational rabbi, seeing those kids who are running up and down the aisles and me just thinking, what a, you know, what's wrong with their parents? What's wrong with them that they're not controlled right and I'm just, you know, beating myself, you know, I'm saying Tachanu now, you know, looking over what happened. So I think that when we begin by educating, and then when we begin by working both educationally and therapeutically with families who are suffering, suffering, I mean, I think the extent of the suffering here is so under rated and underreported and undervalued it's like you know but what it means to have a child who just can't seem to get it right with you're not attuned to him his nature and your nature are not attuned they're not in sync with each other so we we really believe deeply in education and then setting up a therapeutic model and you know it's like the guy walking on the beach and picking up one starfish at a time and throwing it back into the ocean right it's and, and the other guy says to him hey what are you doing? There are three billion starfish. You can't save them all. And he just says one at a time. And I think that's what we're trying to do. If I can, if I can add, I will be also a little bit more brazen and possibly more naive, um, naively optimistic. I believe that we can make cultural changes. Right? I believe that this is the purpose. Right? You have a podcast and it could go to thousands of people and people can read this book. And it is not easy to integrate this information, right? It's like if someone says, oh, that is a shade of, you know, blue outside. And you're like, it is, it looks, right? It's like hard to really make significant changes, but we want to develop a community of support. It's going to look different. The kosher-adhd.com. I actually think it's very funny that it's kosher-adhd because it's funny. Um, um, and that's the website we have. But within this website, right, our goal is also to have a community of support around this, to be able to, to speak about it, to be able to help people access different resources and communities can come together, right? Whether you're learning in workshops or whether people are, are really talking and like sharing wisdom together in terms of values, I think that there is a lot of value here and people are trying. So, and this is where you probably have thoughts about this, right? How do we develop, we don't want to blow up a system that has a lot of value to it, right? The educational system. So ahead, and we believe in the dialectic. We already showed you, right? We're not either or. This is the only way. Then we'd be getting back into the, it's not Esav or Yaakov. The ideal was both or all of the Shvatin. We can find ways for the multiple intelligences that Dr. Chesner speaks about all the time. We're not being, you know, throwing away Torah. We're not like throw, you know, for Chesed. Just the question is, is like, what is the dosages? How does that look? Not dosage, like medicine dosage. How do you really figure how to like put the volume up for certain things and, and down in others? And we have to support the systems because it's not fair to teachers 
or to parents, right? This is why I, I always say Dr. Chesner came and said, you want to do this? And I'm like, uh, I have no time. Like, that's crazy. He's like, but this is so important for the Jewish community. So of course, then you're going to appeal to the sense of mission, but we need people who have more space and time to guide the people who are in the trenches, really, you know, the day to day is so hard to, to guide us because it is exhausting. It's exhausting. Guess what? To be a, a person who has ADHD and have a family like a child or other people, it's so hard to implement it. That's the reality. So the more we could set systems and utilize the community as this way, the Chabura style, the Chavrusa style, it's really where the accountability, like there is so much more that we could do together. That's that's my spiel. We have spoken almost exclusively about ADHD in children, and yet there's so much more we need to talk about when it comes to adults. For example, how ADHD can affect a marriage, how adults have to deal with davening and learning and all the other aspects of Shabbat and mitzvah observance that can affect them. I know we don't have time to deal with all of those issues now. I will ask you if we can have a, a follow-up at some point because this is so important. I just One thing I, I want to just really impart before we come back and do that, I would encourage people, though, because parents, often one of them have it, to be able to really meet your child where they're at. If you are emotionally dysregulated, if you are all over the place, it will be harder to attune to what they need. And so really, it is very important for parents, if they are struggling with this, to get the help, whatever that looks like. It doesn't have to be a clinical thing, but there's so many ways. I'm gonna. I'm not a book pusher, but I'm saying read the book, find other resources. There is so many small things people can do. Like you wear your 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 phone on your on your body, you will spend a significant amount of time not searching for things you lost. Like small things you can do to have less chaos in your home, and that is very important. So we can't spend the whole time talking about children without recognizing the very pivotal role, and and it would otherwise feel daunting. I think. And exhausting when a, when a person who has ADHD hears about what you need to do to help your child with ADHD, you may as well just put them in their bed and say, go to sleep because it's very overwhelming, you know? So I want them to really just impart that message. Okay, thank you. I'd like to ask you both, only because of the situation in which we in the Jewish world find ourselves today, have the events of October 7th and its aftermath, the war that is currently taking place in Israel, has that exacerbated any of the issues that children experience with ADHD? Have you seen any change in children because of that emotional upheaval that's going on? I think the, the answer is definitely yes. In the sense, I'm I'm here in Israel. Um, Israel has become like a nation where everyone since October 7th is in, displaying a lot of ADHD symptoms in the sense of, you know, often... There are really uh, significant mood swings. Um, I live in, in Mala Adumim, and today it just happens that today on my way to work in Jerusalem, I never made it because uh, there was a terrorist attack and uh, one Israeli was killed. Um, and, you know, we, we, we're living uh, where the uncertainty and the changes have made everyone, in, in many ways, we're all in a sense, post-traumatic today and post-trauma, the symptoms of post-trauma are actually quite similar and overlap a lot with the symptoms of ADHD. So I think, yes, kids and adults are much, and Jews, wherever they are, are more, um, are more on edge have trouble really thinking of the long-term picture because when the short-term is so cloudy and unclear, keeping your focus on what's happening over the long run becomes a lot harder. And what we recommend is just, you know, we need to really be focused on, you know, it's the serenity prayer to take responsibility for things that we can change and to just let go of things that we can't change. We, we have a, um, a website called kosher-adhd.com. And this webpage, it's made, we try to make it that it will be very ADHD friendly. So the book too, we try to make as ADHD friendly as a book possibly can be, which with summaries and with charts, um, as much as we can. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of videos on our website 
And we have to look at the small steps, the small picture. And again, not to be overwhelmed, as Dr. Markowitz said, but just to appreciate and take wonder in the small successes that each of us have every day. Dr. Chesson wrote a phenomenal article um, that is on the webpage, and it does like show the difference and overlap between ADHD and trauma. Very informative. All right, that's kosher-adhd.com. I appreciate both of you joining me today. This was a very important conversation. Dr. Sarah Markowitz, Dr. Simcha Chesner, thank you for joining me today, and I do hope I'll be back again soon. Yeah, we like to. It's hard for us to make long-term commitments, but, you know, yeah, we'll try to. (laughs) (laughs) Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of the Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers. And you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.